welcome to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots. I'm Gordon Spence, your host, and today my guest is Manatik Thompson. Manatik Thompson is a teacher by profession and has taught school in Coal Harbor, Nunavut, Rankin Inlet, Nauyat, Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, and Canmore, Alberta. Her spirit of volunteerism and dedication to community also led her to organize the community events and festivals, as well as work with the concerned citizens against drug and alcohol abuse. In recognition for her work, her civic involvement, Ms. Thompson received the Volunteer Award for the Hamlet of Rankin Inlet. Before entering politics in 1994, Ms. Thompson had a distinguished career in education, working as a teacher, language consultant, Inuktitut Program Specialist and Coordinator of Interpreter Services at the Stanton Yellowknife Hospital. Ms. Thompson was first elected to the Northwest Territories Legislature in a by-election on May 8, 1995, and re-elected in October of the same year. While holding the cabinet portfolio as a Minister of Municipal and Community Affairs and Minister responsible for the Women's Directorate, she was a member of the Standing Committee on Finance, the Standing Committee on Agencies, Boards, and Commissions, and the Special Committee on Housing. In Nunavut's first historic election on February 15, 1999, Ms. Thompson was elected to the Nunavut Legislature. Ms. Thompson was subsequently elected to Cabinet and appointed as Minister of Public Works and Services and the Minister responsible for the Nunavut Housing Corporation, and also the Minister of Community Governance and Transportation and Minister responsible for Sports Nunavut. In the final year of her term, she held the portfolios of Human Resources and Minister responsible for the Arctic College and Education. After her political career as a legislative specialist, she led a team to rewrite the Education Act for the Nunavut Territory. She worked at Inuit Broadcasting Corporation as the archivist assistant and is now the CEO for the corporation. She's also volunteered for five years before COVID as a pastor for patients coming down south from Baffin Island to Ottawa. She was recently on APTN and CBC on the show, The Roadkill Lady, born in Coal Harbor, Northwest Territories at the time now called Nunavut. Ms. Thompson now resides with her husband, Tom, in Cotton Place, Ontario. Welcome to Indigenous Roots and Hoots, Manatik, and how are you today? I'm doing good, and it's nice to meet you and see your face. I didn't know what you look like from the emails, <laughs> but now I know what you look like. Maybe we can start by, uh, you can talk a little bit about your family background. I don't know where you were born, but tell us a little bit about your family background and your community. I was born in a tent. Um, like most of my generation, even though we're not the old generation, but my parents, Mikitok, my mom, Twinnock, both were born in the 1920s. And uh, my grandfathers, my, my great-grandparents were involved in the expedition church for, for the ship from England, Franklin ship. So I have that history from my forefathers. If they were in charge, they would have directed them re directly to the ship, um, knowing the area very well. 
where the Ivy League mute, where the people of the wars, I'm Inuit, but my group is called Ivy League mute, where the people of the wars. We have very clear, strict policies in our group. And one of the biggest policies that we have is we don't like to be dependent on anybody or any government. That's how we grew up. We were taught not to take any welfare from the government or any help from the government except education so that we can get educated and someday speak for the people. I am one of the six, uh, one of the five. I have five sisters. I have four sisters, five girls in my family, one boy, Louis Bruce. My oldest sister is Leonie Duffy. She's a hotel owner and uh, she has a store in Coral Harbor. We're from Coral Harbor, Nunavut, and UT before that. My brother is Louis Bruce, an outlet. He's been a contractor. He's got his own business, road construction. My sister Kathy totally is presently the member of legislature representing Rankin Inlet and Chesterfield. She was very young when she started with ITC before it was ITK. She was in politics most of her, her life, but she trained as a lawyer. And she was a Nunavutungavik president for some years. My older sister, Leo, my older sister, Rosemary, is a certified teacher. She's retired now, but she's doing a lot of consultant work and counseling, working with the healing center in Rankin. She's always very busy. Most of my siblings work in the church as pastors. Uh, we started our own church because my, my mom was non-denominational and she just believes the Bible and she did not believe in that a third person has to be involved in praying to God. So she taught us from a young age that we just follow the Bible word to word and uh, we don't need a priest or pastor to get to God. So we started our own church in Coral Harbor, non-denominational. My family did that 50 years ago. Wow. Still going on. Yeah. And um, my family was the last family that moved into town. We walked four miles to school. In the wintertime, in the springtime, uh, by dog team, sometimes, most of the time walking, because my father worked at the dew line, which was 11 miles. He would walk up to his job to 11 miles to be on time for his job because he believed in people being punctual. So in the summertime, in the springtime, when he couldn't use his dog team, he would walk to his work site. He was the second assistant cook janitor to whatever job he could get because he did not believe in welfare. We would walk to school. My dad got an old house from the dew line. And so we lived in that. He fixed it up and we used moss for insulation. We were totally independent. That's what my parents believed in. My great-grandfather, Angotin Marek in Coral Harbor in 1924 or 25, whenever that was, uh, heard that there was a trader on the island in Coral Harbor. And my dad was maybe five, four years old. He lived with his grandfather. A lot of times his grandfather uh, favored him. And they had heard there's a trader in town. 
So he went with his grandfather on a sled to see the trader. My, his grandfather had three foxes. His grandfather went into the trader trading post and said, I have three foxes. I want tea, flour, salt, sugar, and uh, baking powder and a little bit of material. One fox was three wooden tokens. And so the manager said, yes, he can do that, trade the three foxes. But he asked him, can you tell your people to go get as many foxes as you can when we're in the fur business? My great-grandfather said, we're the Ivyling mute. We manage our animals. We don't do that. Next time I have three foxes, I'll come back. Right now you have enough. That's the mindset I come from. We're not dependent on any non-Aboriginal or anybody. We are totally independent people. We were taught that way. My family was the last people that moved into, into town because our youngest little sister, Mona, who specialized in furs and traditional sewing, she needed to go to school. So my parents didn't want her walking. So we moved into town. That was 1964 when social housing was being built. I went to school with Kathy, my sister. I'm Kathy. Our names got mixed up. So she took my name um, because we couldn't tell the teacher that I am Kathy. And I fought for my name Manito because when Inuit children went into the school building, everything changed. You became like a white person. You were given names, Mary, Emily, Janet, whatever it was. Some name that you didn't even know. I didn't know I was Catherine until my mom just had just told me your English name is Catherine. I didn't like it. And it's Kathy. We were all Inuit, Inuit names. I went into the school, the teacher tried to say Monica. I kept saying Manito, and she kept saying Monica. I kept saying no. I didn't even say no. I just said Manito, 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 Manito. I wouldn't give up just saying my name Manito until she could pronounce it and she seemed to be satisfied. And then she turned to my sister, Kathy now. Her name is Katani. Sounds like Catherine. So of course the teacher said Catherine right away and I tried to whisper, how do we tell her? You're not Catherine, you're Katani. That happened and um, we did go to federal day school. We're not residential school people. My two other older siblings did go to vocational school in Churchill, Manitoba. But in Coral Harbor, Federal Day School started in 1954 or something. So it started very early. We are not Catholics. When we went to town, we became Anglicans because my father was in charge. <laughs> but yeah. my mom was not too pleased with that, but we became Anglicans for a while. And then when um, my parents didn't want us to be influenced by other people's family upbringing or whatever, so they had us. We had a house that was not in town. And uh, my mom did Sunday school to us uh, every Sunday. Every Saturday, she, she baked bread. And we did a lot of the house chores because my mom was not well a lot of times. 
my mom's side, she's from Wage Bay. It's a national park now. In 1946, my dad and his uncle traveled by dog team from Coral Harbor, about maybe 300 miles up to where my mom was, up north, and they never seen each other. Uh, he went to my, my mom's town, which was three little houses because my, great, my grandfather, Ekumayok, was the first Unilingo uh, trader with the help of my mom. I still have three two wooden tokens from that store. They took care of that store. They had a polar bear pet, big polar bear pet, and his name was Aksunak. That's another story. My mom, first time met my, my father, my father and his uncle Joe Curley, Tarak Curley's uncle, Tarak Curley's father, took my mom and went across the bay to Dukayuk Bay, which is 250 miles north of Coral Harbor. It's on the Southampton Island. And they set up there. My grandfather, who was a manager, set down the store. There's three houses if you were to Google Wage Bay. There's three treating books three houses, the house, the staff house, and the store where my mom and her family took care of the, the store. Um, now, that was quite an introduction, but I want the state, in my father's words, this can be remembered anywhere, the worst thing that the government has done to our people is give them welfare. I was in uh, Coral Harbor several years back when I did some work for NTI. I know your community is, uh, I know your brother Bruce and I met Kathy and a few other people from Coral Harbor, Raymond Yuchak, another elder. I know that your community is quite rich with wildlife, lots of mammals there, migratory birds and caribou and that's what I heard. I was there in the wintertime, but uh, I didn't see this, but I've been told that it's quite rich in, in wildlife. So apparently it's quite a beautiful place. Uh, it's got a lot of natural resources in terms of, of uh, food, food and game. That's what I remember about Coal Harbor. And I'm glad to meet you. And, uh, and you have quite an interesting family history. And I know that you told me that you didn't attend residential school. You did attend... Uh, the Federal Day School. I wanted to ask you some questions, a, a particular area that I wanted to talk to you about, and maybe you can, you know, just talk a little bit about it. And uh, it's about your culture and the traditional practice of uh, naming your children after people in your community, uh, relatives and other community members, elders, parents who have passed on. Do you uh, practice this custom still in your community? Tell us a little bit about it. We cannot say our communities are an influx of so many groups now. Ivy Dingmute in Coral Harbor are just 1% because Northern Quebec Inuit were also relocated into Coral Harbor. But in my particular grouping of Ivy Dingmute, we have naming systems, we have all kinds of systems, policies, protocols and stuff. With me, my name is Manito. I'm a holder of Manito's 
a family tree. I'm a holder of my tree, family tree as an individual. The naming system was an unwritten family tree of two people, of more than two people. My aunt was Manito. She died in childbirth. In my custom, we waited a year to name the person that passed away. So a year I was born, they named me Manito, and uh, I was called by my father, his sister-in-law, by my mother, her sister-in-law, and my father's brothers, I call them my brother-in-laws. So you actually take on the role of uh, the people that that you were named after, you kind of become those people that you're named after? You take on their role? Uh, it's not so much, it's more of unwritten family tree. A kindred spirit, like... I don't want you to mix this spirituality and stuff like that with this because this is more of a history written inside a person. So if I go to a community, Jokalujak's mom calls me sister. Automatically people know that I'm not her sister, but her sister was the person I'm named after. Right. And so it's it's not a reincarnation, all the spiritual stuff. It's more of an oral written history that you hold. And so you're responsible to make sure that person's history is not lost by calling your dad, my brother-in-law. I called him my father. That's what I called him father. But if uh, my mom would be talking and the young people around, were around, she would address me as her sister-in-law. And that just teaches the other people, like opening a book. Manito was named after my sister-in-law. It's something that is being lost. We don't do that anymore. Even in my young life, we were not allowed to say adult names. We had to do indirectly Jane's mother, Peter's father, Peter's uncle, my big uncle, my little uncle, you know. It was politeness. It was very impolite for a child to call somebody an adult by their first name. You couldn't do it. That's the most rude thing that you could do. The naming system is getting lost. Now young people are naming whoever they want to name. It was the parents or the grandparents that named the child. You, would, you had to name somebody within your group unless you had gratitude for somebody outside the group and that person wanted to be named in your group. That's how it was with my group and with a lot of Inuit groups. Uh, it's so that your family name is with your group and your name is not going to a different group and confusing everybody else over at that end. So the naming system is very complex. Some people right now have five names or six names to a child. That never happened when I was growing up. You just had I just have one name. Yeah. Kathy has one name. Yeah. I heard that one uh, one one particular person that I know was named after four or five people in the community or within a region. 
So he would take on kind of their personality or, so he'd have a huge family, right? His names would come from different people that passed on. It was not like that till 70s. It started to be like that. You would never hear a person having so many names. The only way it was, the only naming law was that you're Gordon, you have a, another name, maybe Fred or whatever it was. Um, so if, you, if I name my child Tulugak, my granddaughter, my mom named her Tulugak, I'm allowed to pick the English name. So I picked Leanne. I did not pick any other names because my mom didn't want any other names. That's how my mom and dad named the child and that was the, the name of that person. Unless that person had a different name, like I would be Manito Singito or something like that. So that could be another name added to her. But there was no such thing as having uh, so many names from, from all these groups and different communities onto one child. My mom thought it was why that changed. She thought that it's because people, when you're named after somebody, when, you're, when your child is named after somebody, you want at, Chris, at Christmas time, at birthdays, you want them to have more gifts from those people that you're named after. Right. That was her explanation. <laughs> What's uh, at one time, uh, Inuit only, did Inuit only have like one name? Like instead of a first, instead of a last name, first name, last name, like we do now? We did not have last names. And uh, when, the, when the whalers came, my grandfather who worked for them or did some work for them, his name, Inuktitut name is Upakto. My father's father is Upakto. They call them Tommy Bruce. It's easier to pronounce, so they call them Tommy Bruce. So he got his own last name. My mother's stepfather, Wager, who was the first Unilingo manager in Wager Bay, his name was Dick Wager. That's why the trading post is called Wager Bay. The English came, the British came and started giving us English names the whalers came and started giving us English names before that. Inuit had no last names. They did have more than maybe two names. They can have two names because the person they're named after may have had two names, so they just carried on to that person. But no, there was no such thing as... Uh, and actually with naming project, when Abe Ukpik went to do all the registrations from the government, uh, brothers got all different last names because their first name became the English baptismal name and their second name became, the last name became their Inuktitut name. So for instance, I'm Manito. So I would go to Abe Ukpik. He would write it down as Catherine Manito. Manito will become my last name. You also had uh, dog tanks, they call them, uh, numbers, e-numbers, uh, that were given by the government of Canada, I guess. Uh, everybody had uh, a little tag with a number on it. Yeah. Well, actually, our mothers kept those in a, in a, in a they had little holes on them. Mine was E31220. And... Um, 
I remember when CD held the ship, the clinic ship that used to come once a year into our bay, we would be on there and the doctors and the dentists would be calling out one, E31220, E31227 or whatever. There was no mention of any names. And even in school, we would play games with each other and try to memorize everybody's numbers. Uh -huh. It was just a number. And, and it was because what? You didn't have two names or what? Uh, they couldn't pronounce your names? It was because they couldn't pronounce the name and they were too lazy to figure out who we were. Um, okay. Just, just, uh, just a laziness on behalf of the federal government. I understand you've done much volunteer work, including your work as a pastor for patients coming south for medical treatment to Ottawa. Can you talk about a bit about this and are you still involved in this area helping your people? Yeah, and um, you know, Gordon, my mom, grandfather, Maliki, he talked to God himself and we don't give the credit to the white person to giving us a gospel. The written word agreed with what my great grandfather was teaching. And so we adopted the Bible because it was just a way we had our own laws, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, don't go around with other people's wives and blah, blah, blah. We had those before contact. So my whole family history, we are pastors, we counselors, my whole family grouping, we help. And we were told, taught by my mom and dad, we help without recognition. And I actually don't like to be, you know, I have all these things that I have done before I've been a minister and all this stuff. I had an opportunity to be the first premier of Nunavut. I was asked, I said, no, I'm a worker. I, I like to work. I don't want to be recognized. That's how I was taught. The only recognition I need is God saying, well done. And when I knew there was a need here in Ottawa, people wanting somebody to talk to confidentially about their hurts and pains, I volunteered and I went, I approached them, the center there, I said, I can help. So I drove every Sunday. Sometimes I spent four hours, five hours, people crying, somebody to talk to. I held services in their language. I preached the gospel, I sang, and Tom made me a podium. So I did that, and not for recognition, but it's to help where you can. That's what I was taught. CBC and APTN referred to you as the, quote, roadkill lady in a special broadcast. I haven't had the chance to see this, but it sounds interesting. Tell us how you got this nickname and uh, how did this come about? It came about with, we have to teach the, the white people to become Inuk people. So they did that to us. They came to our town and tried to teach us to be white people. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I really thought, I thought of this and I thought, you know, I would see a roadkill and I, I'm just wondering, my dad would be so upset if there was fur lying there and somebody must be just throwing it away. 
So I thought, you know, I should teach these white people to become Inuk people and just uh, invite them to my house. It's part of reconciliation. That's what reconciliation is about. It's our turn. So that's what I did. I collect roadkill, I skin them, I tan them, I dry them and make them into mitts. And I invited all these white people to come into my house and eat seal meat and walrus meat and whatever I had. And just, well, you know, that's what I yeah. did. <laughs> teach, them, teach them a bit about being an Inuk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My last question is about reconciliation. Do you have a message for Canadians about reconciliation and how we can make Canada a better country to live in? Or a better country to live in as first Canadians. I think we're the ones that uh, require some attention and priority on any Canadian agenda if it involves our people. I would like, I would love that we have our own party system in the federal government politics. We have, as you know, we have the parties in there, NDP, Liberals and Conservatives. I think we need our own party as First Canadians. Uh, and I have put the seed into the young, younger generation when I do presentations. I would, I would wish to see that. The other thing we can do right now is if we had space to do orientations on our culture and our language in the cities or in towns. Every service person, police, social worker, nurses, all these service people should be oriented first to the first Canadian culture and our policies and the way we live, what we eat, how we react. These need to be taught to every person that is going to serve our people. In Ottawa, we should have a center right now where we have a full-time classroom where people can register with presenters, first Canadian presenters in a classroom somewhere so that that's reconciliation gordon it's it's and you know elders are being used in federal meetings to open meetings with prayers and stuff uh, that's just a joke that's a tokenism we don't get to say anything in those meetings we just say a prayer and do the smudge and lighting and that's it. That's not reconciliation. It's a big deal to the federal government. It's part of their reconciliation plan, I guess. It's a joke. Whenever I bring up the topic of reconciliation with different guests and just talking to people in general about it, everybody seems to have a different uh, point of view. Uh, maybe that's part of, the, part of the problem. Everybody has a different view. Uh -huh. uh, a different way of looking at reconciliation. It's a long, uh, it's a long, difficult process. It's not going to happen overnight. It's uh, something that we, we as Canadians, have to continue to work on. There's no, there's right. no simple answer to it. Well, well, you know, even if we were to be involved with the policy changes, like very simple, the false teeth of Inuit 
they crack because we chew the seal skins to tan them and it takes 11 years to renew them. They're gone in six months if you're really heavy into uh, doing skins and stuff. That's a policy change that needs to happen. And is it hard? Is it too difficult? What we need to do is get working with the policy makers in the federal government and make changes for childcare, social worker, I don't know what their policies are, even the education system. When I've been in schools teaching culture to the student, uh, a lot of times it's just the spirituality that is being taught. It's beads and smudging. We want that to teach them how to tan a skin, how to skin animals, how to uh, treat an elder if they come and visit, if they visit them, like the social values. The whole education system have to be changed. I don't know what the curriculum say when it comes to indigenous studies. I don't have a clue. There should be more of it, I think, more indigenous studies programs, you know, geared towards students starting from kindergarten to grade 12. Like hands-on, hands-on yeah. stuff, yeah. To learn about uh, the culture, it should be taught in schools. I think uh, non, especially non-Indigenous students, you know, should be given an opportunity to spend some time with Native people like out on the land so that they have a greater understanding of how they live, their culture, their lifestyle. Because racism is not with the baby. It's right. what they learn when they're growing up from their parents. The last part of uh, our podcast of Roots and Hoots is what we call the Hoots part. That Hoots meaning something funny, a joke or a story. We're going to end this podcast with uh, with a joke. If you have one, Manatuk, uh, I don't know how funny you are, but you have <laughs> well, a joke, uh, a funny I story can... for us today? <laughs> I have a story. In 95... Uh, I became a cabinet minister in an NWT government. And I was in my office the first time. And um, I was just thinking to myself, it seemed like I've transitioned so fast. I didn't know a word of English. I was walking to school. I was on dog teams. And today I was in charge of a whole department of 700 people. And um, I had hired my secretary, G. Lakakasak. I have hired my executive assistant and Brian Minton. My secretary comes in and she says, you have two staff members to brief you. It was my first meeting with my staff. I didn't know how much authority I had until that day. I learned it very fast. So they came in, sat in front of me, the two guys. They gave me papers, and English is my second language. So right. I have, it takes a little bit more time to comprehend. There were some figures, and about, I'm not sure what it was about, maybe a bridge somewhere. Anyway, the two guys are sitting in front of me, two older people, two older white people, men. It was a little bit intimidating for me. But anyway, here I was the minister. So I got the paper. I'm reading it. 
I'm taking my time and a fly, a black fly flies. And I went like this. I just went like this. I put the paper down. The two guys were gone. They thought I had sued them away. I was <laughs> I was shooing the fly away. Oh, with your hand gesture, yeah. <laughs> and then I went, I yelled at my secretary who was right near the door. I said, Gila, what happened to those two guys? And she goes, Manita, I've never seen people run out of an office so fast. They just practically ran out and down the hall. <laughs> I said, why? She said, you shoot them away. I okay. said, I did, I did that to the fly. <laughs> that day I found I had a lot of authority. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a wave of your hand, eh? Yeah, just a wave of my hand and they were gone. <laughs> I thought, my God, that is so great. I can change the world with that. <laughs> that is funny. Well, uh, it's been a real honor, a real pleasure to talk to you today, Manatik. My guest today has been Manatik Thompson. She's a former minister in Anuna with the NWT government, and she's also a teacher, and she's done a lot in her in uh, in her career. Uh, a very ambitious, uh, smart lady, very knowledgeable about, I guess, now uh, how government works. And uh, and I want to thank Manitouk for uh, taking the time. Thank you very much for 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 doing this and uh, being with us here today. Thank you, Gordon. It was nice to visit you. It was a great visit. Thank you for giving me the time to share my stories. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.